Now, being a, a parent is an incredible privilege, a lot of fun, awesome thing. But there are times as a parent when um, it's not an easy thing either. For instance, when uh, one of your children makes a mistake and you have to decide to give them consequences, what sort of consequences do you give them? Typically, we try to do our best, but there are times we have to admit that maybe we overreact. We give them consequences beyond what they deserve, and we feel badly about it. As I read this story that was just read out of chapter 7, you know, that's one of the thoughts that pops in my head when I, when I first heard this story many years ago. If God is our Father in heaven and the people of Israel are his children, in this story, did, did God overreact? It, it's a pretty heavy story, kind of a harsh story when you look at this. It, it kind of ends with, And Achan and all who belonged to him were stoned and burned. Pretty, pretty harsh consequence, isn't it? We're going to be looking at this passage a little bit more in depth and looking at that whole idea of did God overreact and why did this happen? But before we do that, we're going to do a kind of a quick recap of what we've done so far to this point, just to kind of catch people up to speed who maybe this is their first Sunday. Well, the past six weeks we've spent some time in the book of Joshua, and we looked at the first six chapters. Uh, the first chapter, we find the people of Israel, they've come out of the desert, they're at the Jordan River, they're getting ready to cross the river, go in the promised land, and God gives them their marching orders. He says, be strong, courageous, don't depart from my word, understand my word, do it, obey it, and everything will go well with you. Then we come to chapters, uh, chapter 2, and before they cross, the, before they kind of cross the Jordan River and, and, and get into battle, they send a couple spies across who go to Jericho, kind of the, the first big city, big walled city with two, inner, two big walls around the city, all the way around, uh, to do some reconnaissance. And uh, the two spies find some, some uh, safety with a prostitute named Rahab who hides them when the king sends men looking for them. And they strike a deal. Uh, she says, I will not turn you in if, if when you come and win the battle if you'll spare me and my family. And they both agree. They shake on it, I guess, or whatever they did. And, uh, and, and, and she's spared when it does happen. In chapter 3, they, they cross the Jordan River. In chapter 4, they build a, a monument to mark the spot of God's intervention. In chapter 5, there's this odd passage where God calls all the men to, to be circumcised before they go into the Promised Land. And then in chapter 6, the, the well-known story of the Battle of Jericho. We often hear it when we were kids in Sunday school. And they march around the city six days, once a day. Then the seventh day, seven times, they, they have the Ark of the Covenant. They blow horns, they shout, and the walls come tumbling down. And then, at the end of chapter 6, there's kind of a parallel story with Achan. In Achan, in the story in chapter 7, Achan and his family are Israelites, and they get some harsh consequences. At the end of chapter 6, after the walls of Jericho fall, the Canaanites in the city of Jericho, except for Rahab and her family, also suffer the same fate as Achan does. And then at the end of Jericho, or end of chapter 6, the people of Israel are living in obedience with God, God's fulfilling His promises, and all is right with the world. And then we come to chapter 7. And in verse 1 we read this. All is well. They've won this great victory. 
But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, sons of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, some of the devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, as we read this, we have an advantage that Joshua and the people of Israel did not have. Uh, chapter, verse 1, gives us an advantage. It gives us insight that they didn't have when these things were happening. It's sort of like when you're watching a disaster movie, uh, like around the end of the world movies. You know, you, you see the earth begin to shake underneath the ocean, and then the camera pans, and you see these wa- the, the waves begin to build, and it pans back to the people on the mainland, and they're, you know, they're having a barbecue, playing frisbee with a dog on the beach, kind of hanging out with a family, unaware, totally unaware of what's coming and what's, and what's building, the disaster that's about to befall them. And that's kind of what's happening here. We, we, in chapter uh, 7, verse 1, we're given an insight of, of what's going to happen coming up here. Because what we see in the rest of the chapter is uh, they, they send off this, the, this small army. They've won this big battle in, in chapter 6 over this huge city, Jericho. And the next city on the list is Ai. And we're told it's not a very big city, and so they must have thought, well, it shouldn't be that big a deal. We can easily handle this. So they send off an ar- a small army, not everybody, and lo and behold, they surprise, they're defeated. And 36 men are killed. And the reason this happens, we're told, is Achan, what Achan has done. Now, Achan had clear warning. Back in verse... 18 of chapter 6, we're told this. But keep away from the devoted things, so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Nothing ambiguous there. Keep away from the devoted things. Everything will go well with you. And yet Achan saw and he coveted and he took. Kind of echoes of the Garden of Eden, right? Clear instruction disobedience, consequences. And it concludes, and so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua was befuddled by all this. And so in verses 6 through 9, he doesn't yet know about Achan's deception and and thievery. And so in verses 6 through 9, Joshua cries out to God. In essence, he says to God, why have you brought us here if you're going to allow us to be defeated like this. Uh, People are going to make fun of us, and more importantly, they're going to mock your name, God. And so he says, what will you then do for your own great name? He prays out to God. He calls out to God. And God's response comes in verse 10. Stand up. What are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned, and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They've turned their backs and run because they've been, un, because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And then Achan is found out. Now it's interesting to note, it's important to note, that he doesn't come forward of his own volition. He's flushed out. But once he's found out, he does acknowledge what, he, what he's done. This is his response. 
I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with a silver underneath. He saw, he coveted, and he took. In effect, he's saying, I don't think God knows the right way forward. I need to take things into my own hand. He doesn't provide all my needs, so I'm just going to take what I want and what I see. And the consequences are harsh. And then Joshua together with all his family took Achan and his family, his goods and cattle, all that he had. They were stoned and they were burned in the valley of Achor. And then verse 26, the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Now, again, this is a shocking story. We, we look at this and we think, really, this is in the Bible? This, this is the God of, of love that we worship and we sing about and we, we pray to? How could this be? What, what is fair or right about this? It seems to be an overreaction. You know, many people refuse to believe in God because of stories like this, like the story of Achan or the story of, of Jericho's people being wiped out according to God's order. Because in their view, any God who would do such a thing is not worthy of worship. Lee Strobel addresses this topic Uh, in his book called The Case for Faith. He frames it this way, I quote, God's image as a loving and benevolent deity gets called into question by stories of seemingly cruel and vengeful behavior. Do these brutal accounts disclose the true character of God? And if they do, does he deserve to be worshipped? To answer his his objection, his question, he interviews a man named Dr. Norman Geisler, or Geisler, who's a seminary president. And here's what Geisler had to say. In Jericho 6, where the Bible talks about the destruction of Jericho and the Canaanites, we've got to understand this. This was a thoroughly evil culture, so much so that the Bible says it nauseated God. We see this in Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. They were into brutality, cruelty, incest, bestiality, cultic prostitution, even child sacrifice by fire. They were an aggressive culture that wanted to annihilate the Israelites. He continues. Again, you've got evil people who were destroyed, but the righteous among them who were saved. For instance, Rahab, who protected the Israelite spies, was not judged with the other people. And look at what happened to the corrupt residents of the city of Nineveh in Jonah's story. God was going to judge them because they deserved it, but they repented, and God saved the whole bunch. So here's the point. Whoever has repented... God has been willing to save. Whoever has repented, when you look through Scripture, God has always been willing to save. Even in this story, if Achan would have, would have come forward of his own volition, if he'd been willing to repent, he would have been saved. In verse 20, yes, he acknowledges sin. He said it was wrong, but that was after God's judgment had already been passed in verse 15, where God says, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. God is able and willing to save all who repent. He promises us that in Joel 2.32 and in Romans 10 where it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the story soberly tells us that it's too late to repent when you're standing in front of God for judgment. And that's heavy. 
one thing that can be helpful with us for us is is a quote by Tim Keller. He said, basically, here's the gospel in a nutshell. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. You see that we know that Jesus Christ died for us. We're so familiar with the story of the cross that sometimes we, we can tend to gloss over it. Jesus Christ died for us because of his love for us, but the Bible also tells us that Jesus Christ became the object of the Father's wrath. He took the place of our sin. God's anger for sin burned against Jesus. And because it did, when we put our trust in Christ, it's turned away from us. It's taken away from us. And God's love remains. Powerful story I think I've shared before, but it fits really well here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, Like the rest, we were objects by nature, objects of God's wrath. And the story is about a Christian speaker who was at a conference, and after he got done speaking, a woman came up to him. Uh, she was obviously from, from a different country. Uh, she was black, and she spoke with an accent, and he, he asked her her name, and she gave her his, her name. And, and he asked, um, Are you from Africa? She said, Yes, give me your African name. So she gave him the name. And, and he, of course, he didn't understand it, but he asked her, What does your name mean? And she said, my name means child who takes the anger away. So that's, that's very unusual. Tell me the story behind your name. She said, well, you see, my husband and I, we, we or excuse me, my parents, my parents grew up in, in rival warring tribes. Um, they had nothing to do with each other, but my husband and I fell in love with each other. And we wanted to get married, but our parents would not give a blessing. But we persisted, and we got married anyway, and both tribes turned their backs on us, would have nothing to do with us. We were banished. Uh, eventually, we became pregnant. We, we had a, a child. And when we put our child in the arms of our parents, the anger melted away. There was reconciliation. And so we called our child, they called me, child who takes the anger away. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as a baby who grew into a man who gave His life for us on the cross. And when Christ died for us on the cross, the consequences of our sin, the judgment that came from our sins, was taken away. The anger was taken away because of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace we have been saved. Romans 5.8 says, Even while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. He demonstrated His love for us and that Christ died for us. This is a heavy story. And it's, it's a heavy passage. But it points us to the fact that there are consequences for sin. That God is a holy and just God. But it also points us to the fact that God is a God who loves us so much that He made a way, He made a way for the judgment that we're all due. Because let's be honest, in a sense we're all aching. We've all fallen short. We've all grabbed things for ourselves. But because of God's love for us, we can be forgiven. We can know His love. 
and we do not have to live and walk in fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and this is a, this is a tough passage, God. And Lord, we confess to you that there are times we don't understand completely what you're doing or why. Lord, help us to, to dig deep and pursue and to seek understanding. Lord, help us to, to trust in you, to know that you are a God of holiness, but you're also a God of love and of grace and of mercy. So Lord, we come before you today and we offer ourselves to you anew. We, we do confess that we are sinners and we trust in you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would deepen our hearts and minds, know your love for us, that we would not walk in fear or condemnation, but that we would look to the cross and see your love. Thank you, Lord. Work in us. Change us. Thank you for your love. Amen.